We are in John chapter 6. We're going to finish John chapter 6 this morning. In this chapter, as we're going to read today, there have been some things said that are hard things. Um, But to those who believe, they're very sweet. (laughs) They are the power of God. So we praise the Lord for all of the things that we've been learning through the ministry and the teaching of Christ over this last month. Today we're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Um, And in this chapter, really all over the Gospels and all over Scripture, we see three types of responses, maybe four, but we'll compartmentalize them into three. Three types of responses to Jesus and his teaching. One response is immediate rejection. They hear the truth, they hear his teaching, they say no way, and they're out. Uh, Number two, those are easy to identify, right? Uh, Number two is where it starts to get hard. Uh, The only place really it's that hard. The second type of response is, is people who like what they see, but then they fall away, uh, perhaps due to the fear of man, uh, due to the fact that the signs aren't the main deal, that a life of ease and health and wealth were not a part of the deal. And then a third type of response to Christ is that of the genuine, okay, reborn from above, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, genuine believers. So those, those three types of responses, the immediate rejection, those that kind of like things and, and join up uh, for the party at the beginning, and then when things don't go the way they want, they back off and leave, and then those that are genuine believers. That might remind you of, of passages like Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, which are all the same parable, the parable where Jesus compares the ground where the seed of God's word is sown, that ground is the heart of man. There's the path, which never received the seed at all. It just went down there and never took it in. There's rocky ground, if you remember. And that rocky ground seems to receive the seed, but then rejects it when tribulation, when persecution comes as a result of that truth, the fear of man. And then there's the thorny ground uh, that also seems to receive the word until it realizes that the cares of this world, health, wealth, that prosperity, etc., that those things aren't covered with the plan. They signed up for the plan and found out what wasn't covered, and that chokes it out, their belief. And then there's the good soil, the good soil, uh, which receives God's word, understands it, believes, and then bears fruit. That person with the heart full of good soil changes their life changes increasingly, progressively, to the glory of God, and it bears fruit. And the question, the question that we might have from a parable like this is, how does that good soil get good? How does that good soil get good? What, what has to happen to get a person from path ground, hard and rocky ground, hard and thorny ground, to good soil? And wouldn't you know, wouldn't you know, God already answered that question for us. It's in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verses 23 to 26. And this is the unchangeable, all-powerful God who promises this, who promises to the remnant of Israel that they will repent and they will follow him in the end. It's as if it's done. Okay, this is what it says. Verse 23, and I, the Lord, 
will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you, Israel, have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, Israel, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. Was that literal or figurative? I think it was a figurative example about a literal change. Would you agree with that? I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. So, question, how does a person get a good soil heart? God gives them one. God gives them one. That's how. And so all glory to God. Amen. Uh, one of the problems that we're going to have to address today, though, is that uh, what to do, we're going to have to address the idea of what to do with those who have the thorny or rocky ground hearts. They're going to hear the word of God, the gospel preached to them, and they're going to initially hear it and rejoice, externally or rejoice. But their rejoicing will not be the result of belief. Since their cares are more uh, with the praise of man and the ease of life, their rejoicing will be from some other things. One, thinking that they found a supportive, mutually self-affirming club to join, something like that. Or two, thinking they found a ticket to the show. They want the signs. They want the comforts. They want to feel church and see God things, affirming their expectation for God to pull through for them and deliver in the clutch. But then, as they're going along, when other people who are also sinful, even saved by the grace of God, we still sin, yes? When other sinful people who are growing in God's grace do something they don't like, and we will, I will. Or when God doesn't show up when times are hard like they would expect him to, alleviating certain cares and concerns, and they're gone. Their supposed faith is choked out, as the parable said. And the truth of their standing against Christ, against Christ, you are either for him or you are against him, it's revealed. It's revealed. It's exposed. It's like we've seen already in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. That said, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus... Uh, he, on his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So sadly, and this, right, sadly, there are believers who aren't believers. There are disciples who aren't truly disciples. And this isn't an unprecedented thought. This isn't something that might be new to us. It's not an unprecedented truth, not even in this gospel. We're going to see it today in John 6, but Jesus already showed that to us in John 2 and amongst other places as well. Now, before we get into this text for today, uh, we need a little recap. Uh, The first words of verse 60 say, when many of the disciples, quote-unquote disciples, 
heard it. We need to make sure that we remember what the disciples just heard. Okay? So in summary, when Jesus, what Jesus told them is that none of them, no one could ever believe unless God draws them. Jesus said that every single person who is drawn by God and taught by him will believe. Jesus said that not everyone, not everyone is drawn and taught by God since not everyone believes. Jesus said that not a single person who God draws and teaches who therefore believe will ever be lost. Amen. And that everyone who believes will be resurrected by God. All of that guaranteed by him. It's his promise and not our doing. And Jesus said this. In order for us, in order for believers to come to Jesus and be saved, he had to give his flesh and blood. And if taken literally, which many wrongly did on that day, that would mean cannibalism. If taken figuratively, which Jesus clearly confirmed on that day, it means the cross. Jesus gave us, didn't he? He gave us his flesh, his blood at the cross, paying the penalty of our sin. He was our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, after hearing all of this, the crowd, hearing all of this from their supposed teacher, their rabbi, who they're continually doubting more and more, This is John 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Two things here. The word disciple, when many of his disciples heard it, it means, that word means someone who attaches themselves to a teacher. Someone who attaches themselves to a teacher. So Jesus had disciples that he chose and said, you're attached. And then Jesus had disciples who attached themselves to a teacher. Okay? So it's not incredibly alarming that some of those who had initially attached themselves to Jesus had not been attached by the gifting, the teaching, the drawing of the Father, but instead by their desire for miracles, for food, whatever else they might want. So that's first. Second, the listening. Uh, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This listening implies obedience. If you say to your child, listen to me, you don't want them to just hear what you say. You want them to do what you say, right? And that is exactly what this means. So they're not saying who can listen to this stuff. They're saying who could do this? Who could do this? And what was it that they could not do? Was it the flesh and the blood thing? Uh, Was it the idea of not having to work, but just believing to receive eternal life? We know it couldn't be that option because Jesus just told them that God does that work anyway. No one comes unless they're drawn. The Father gives people to Jesus. None who come will ever be lost. Our salvation is all of God's grace. There was no doing to do. They're the works of God, not our own. And so I I think these people who are about to become, they are about to become former disciples. They're struggling with these statements from Jesus. Number one, Jesus said he had come down from heaven. Remember that? They didn't like that. Jesus, you're Joseph's son, the carpenter from Nazareth. You came down from heaven? Number two, he said that he was God's answer for their eternal life, not them. Jesus says, I am what you need. I am the bread of life. 
It wasn't going to be their own ability or their righteousness, but his. And they're struggling with that. But number three, of course, the idea that, that they'd come to eat his flesh or drink his blood, which we know just means that you need to believe and come to Jesus. And then four, Jesus told them they didn't believe. And because they didn't believe, they didn't have eternal life. Jesus just said this to them. He told them this. Some of God's chosen people, okay, Israel, were not chosen. What? And many of these disciples were not truly disciples. They didn't like that message at all. So as long as Jesus gave them a show, as long as he gave them a show and a full belly, they stuck around. But as soon as Jesus spoke the words of life, pointed out unbelief, sin, and called on repentance, change, faith, they were ready to leave, and they will. And Jesus knew that already. He knew that already. Just as he knew that they didn't believe, he knew they were complaining. Verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at this? The word for offense is the same as causing them to stumble. Meaning that Jesus knew they didn't believe. Now, this word for stumbling is also used in Romans 9.33. It says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, who is the him? Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. Jesus is asking these grumbling followers, Has what I said, have my words given you reason to not believe? Verse 62, then, if that's the case, what if you were to see, think signs, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Remember, they didn't believe that Jesus came down from heaven. He was Joseph's son. He was from Nazareth. But perhaps if they saw him going back up, then would they believe? And the answer is no. Sadly, no. Jesus declares to them here that even if they were to see him ascend back to his former glory before he took on this flesh and blood, uh, what would they do with that? They wouldn't believe. Still, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what signs you see. It doesn't matter what signs you see. They don't do anything. These people aren't stumbling at the signs. They're stumbling at his words. The signs drew them to him. The truth made them run. Because it says in verse 63, verse 63, it is the Spirit. This is still Jesus speaking to them. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, what does it say? The flesh is no help at all. No help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, the words are spirit and life. Now imagine the crowd saying, but Jesus, you just told us to eat your flesh. And now you're saying that the flesh is no help at all? But he's not even talking about that at this point, is he? Jesus here continues to clarify exactly what he meant and what he means. The signs, the amazing miracles, the food, none of that causes anyone to believe. None of it does. It doesn't work. Uh, Doing works, the physical outward stuff that you're asking instructions for. 
uh, eating flesh and drinking blood, which he never actually told them to do. A person's ability to figure it all out because they're so smart and they overcame their sinful, depraved nature on their own with their sinful mind. Doesn't sound like it's going to work, does it? It doesn't work. None of that is any help at all. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh does not lead you to Christ. Did you hear that? The flesh does not lead anyone to Christ. I think this passage is so helpful. I read it to you three or four weeks ago. I'm going to read it to you again. Ephesians 4, 17 through 20. He says this, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, like the world, in the futility in the futility of their minds. Not stupidity. They're not stupid. They're just incapable. Their intellectual efforts, no matter how brilliant they are, they're futile. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why is that ignorance there? Due to the hardness of heart. Due to their hardness of heart. That's sinful depravity. It's not stupidity. It's depravity. Does that make sense? They have become callous and have given themselves, given themselves by their own desire. They've given themselves up to sensuality. That's fleshliness. They're giving up, they're giving themselves up to their fleshly desires. So they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But, verse 20, this is not the way you learned Christ. The flesh is no help at all. Well, then, how did they? How did we? How does anyone learn Christ? Well, Jesus told us in John 6. God the Father draws and teaches and graciously gives us a heart of flesh, that good soil. The Spirit, we just read, gives life through, through what? Words. The Word. The words that I have spoken to you Jesus says, our spirit and life. So remember the parable in Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8? The seed was the word of God. A little bit later in Luke 8, verses 19 through 21, Jesus, this is about Jesus and his earthly family. It says, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the Word of God and do it. James 1, 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He does not change. Well, now, James, can you give us an example of these good gifts that come down from the Father? Well, how about this? Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth, born from above, by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First Peter one twenty three. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, there's that illustration again, but of imperishable through the living and abiding, can you guess what the word is? Word of God. So church, what do people need to hear and see from us? What should be our strategy and tool for evangelism and for discipleship based on all these passages and, and more? What do people need? The Word of God. The Word of God. Listen, we need to help people, we need to love people where we can to meet their needs. There's also the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? 
That's there too. But you need to be careful. Giving people money does not save people. Giving people food does not save people. Healing people does not save people. Uh, Meeting everyone's expectations and personal preferences does not save people. Singing only new music or only old music does not save people. Enjoying blue carpet or hot pink carpet does not save people. Inspecting people before they're even saved to see if they meet our expectations does not save people. What saves people? What causes them to grow? What do they need to hear from us? That we're cool? That we're not cool? Some people would rather us not be cool, right? That we're, and we're stepping on toes a little bit, that we're traditional or contemporary? No! None of that. None of it. They need Jesus Christ. They need the grace of God. They need the ministry of the Spirit to give them life. And they get that by God's design through hearing and reading the Word. The Word of God. Uh, If you remember, about two weeks ago, I totally obliterated a quote. You remember that? Kirk was so nice to me. If you listen to the sermon on our website, it's not even there. It's like it just poofed. It went away. Okay? That quote, though, that I butchered, it was St. Francis of Assisi. And I wrote it down in my notes this week to make sure I wouldn't mess it up. And here it is. He said, preach the gospel, okay, at all times. All right. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Uh, First Baptist Church, when is it necessary to use words to preach the gospel? At all times. Every time. When is it necessary? It's always necessary. It's always necessary. I get what he was trying to say. And we should be kind and loving to people because that's who we are in Christ. But if we're going to win people to Jesus, they need the word of God. It's always necessary. Every time. That's why our vision statement here at this church is connecting people, transforming lives by the word of God. That's what we do. That's our method. Okay, but here comes the temptation. What if that doesn't work? You see my quotes, air quotes, in case it doesn't get in the recording there. What if it doesn't work? What if I try to share the word of God with someone and it doesn't work and they reject it? Well, then what? And that's, that's sometimes when we start trying to manipulate people through the flesh. Okay? Uh, those attempts can result in, if we start to mess with the flesh to try to draw people in, that's when we start to see, right, the rocky ground and the thorny ground type of decisions. I'm sure it's well-intended. I've done it way too many times. But it can be manipulation. And that's of the flesh. That's of the flesh. And the flesh is no help at all. Jesus said this. If we get into an intellectual wrestling match with somebody to get them to bow in submission and have the referee beat the mat three times, they go, okay, fine, I'll get saved. You're too logical for my, for my intellect. Now I'll get saved. The flesh is no help at all. If we say, oh, don't you want those streets of gold? Pray this prayer and you'll get streets of gold. 
Ooh, that sounds nice. Okay. The flesh is no help at all. Does that make sense? The word of God. The word of God. Uh, Are we looking forward to heaven? Yes. Of course we are. Is that why we're saved? No. Nope. It's a gift. Okay? That's not bait. It's a gift. So, but just to encourage you, and I want to encourage you in this, Isaiah 55, 11. If we say, well, the word doesn't always work. Well, what? Oh, what did you say? Right? Isaiah 55, 11 says this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Does God's word not work? Does God's word sometimes not work and sometimes work? No, God work, God's word works how often? All the time. All the time. It always accomplishes that which it was sent for. And who sent it? God did. Never failing. Never failing. Okay? And that verse is not just for preachers. That's for you just as much as it is for me. Okay? Uh, when you or I share the word with Christians and with the lost, it always succeeds in doing God's and accomplishing God's perfect will. Remember, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes. That was John six forty five, And all that the Father gives Jesus will come to him and never be cast out. Verse 37. The word of God works exactly as God intends every time. So we can have confidence in that truth. And let's be honest. Sometimes we also say that things are really important for the church, that they'll really be effective for the church, because it's what we want. It's what we want. What I want. Okay? And it's okay to like certain things. Everyone has likes and dislikes. There's nothing wrong with that. Just say it and accept it for what it is, right? There's nothing wrong with liking things, and, and for, for, there's nothing wrong with asking questions, or else we wouldn't have a Q&A later on, right? There's nothing wrong with liking things. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. Those are good things. But if I'm willing to sin in order to get it, or if I sin because I didn't get it, if I'm willing to lie or cheat or steal, if I'm willing to put pit people against each other, if I'm willing to cause division or go behind people's backs to stir up controversy, then that like or that perceived need has become more important to me than my God, than Jesus Christ, than my Lord and Savior. And it's become more important to me than the souls of the other people that I'm around. If I'm willing to sin over it, and drag or tempt other people into sin over it, then what am I all about? What am I all about right now? Oh, what, does, what does that say about my values? And I would need to repent if I were to do that. Uh, may God gra- graciously grant repentance. And beyond that, okay, not just liking things too much and getting carried away, but beyond all that, if then I'm willing to drop out of the faith altogether because I didn't get what I liked or what I wanted, what does that mean? What does that mean? Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And it was, and who it was who would betray him. John's foreshadowing Judas here. Jesus is saying to these false disciples, you have been given these words, 
you have been given the word of God, and yet you do not believe. He's saying, you've seen the signs, you got your goodies, you got what you liked, but they were never going to make you believe. And then you heard the words of life. You were told that the words were superior in every way compared to your earthly, fleshly wants. The words superior in every way to the wants. And consequently, you rejected me. Verse 65, and he, Jesus, said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. The words of life would never have become more desirable to us than our fleshly wants unless God had graciously intervened. Let's say that one more time. The words of life would never have become more desirable to us than our fleshly wants unless God had graciously intervened. In our sin, we want what we want, and it's not him. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back. And they no longer, from that day forward, they no longer walked with him. They left. They were done. They rejected the teachings of Jesus. They detached themselves from him as their teacher, as their rabbi. They were no longer considered his disciples. They went from the short-lived public status of a disciple to scoffers. They never believed. So now, verse 67, in contrast to those who had abandoned the faith, now Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And remember, one of the twelve, John's already told us about him. One of those twelve does want to go away, or really has already gone away in his heart. And that's Judas, of course. He's sticking around. We find out later he's sticking around for the money. He's the bank man in a bad way, okay? And Jesus already knew this. However, the rest of the disciples are represented here by Peter. He's their spokesman, and they have received the grace of God. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? If we were to go away, where would we go? To whom? Who else? Because Jesus... You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In contrast to those who had now rejected Jesus, the one they hoped would be the prophet to come to give them the life that they always dreamed of, Peter confesses that Christ isn't just a giver of likes and wants. How little to think of him. If that's all he is. Jesus is the Holy One of God. The Christ. The Son of God. God the Son. The Messiah. And that it wasn't a temporarily glamorous ease of life that they needed from him. But what they needed, they'd come, they'd come to know by the grace of God that what they really needed were the words of eternal life. Take all your likes and wants in this world, take them all together, pile them all up, and measure them against the words of eternal life. How could they ever compare to the worth of Christ? All of those things we might pile up that we want from this world, they're nothing. They are a vapor, grass that withers away. Christ is everything. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? 
He's teaching them something here. These 12 were chosen to have the closest access to Jesus, not to eternal life, as we're going to find out, obviously. Because he says here, and yet one of you is a devil. He didn't say is going to be. He said is. And the Greek word that's used here for devil is not the word that's often translated as demon. In some translations in English, it can say the word for demon or the word for devil, and it just always says a devil, a devil, a devil. But there's actually two Greek words there. And this is the word for the devil. Okay? And that word means a slanderer, a false accuser. In Luke 22, we're told that Satan himself did enter Judas in the process of betraying Christ prior to his arrest. Verse 71, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And this right here is the first mention of Judas by name in the Gospel of John. And remember, he was one of the twelve. And he's the one who would betray Christ. John lets the reader know right here, right away, who Judas is and what he's going to do. And that Jesus knew it all along. And we have then, we have the occasion through that knowledge and through that learning to ask the question, well, who could these false disciples be? The fact that there are disciples who aren't disciples, that there are believers who aren't believers, well, who could they be? One of the twelve. Even one of the twelve. So who's, who's not in that list? Are there pastors who are not really believers and not truly disciples? Yes, there are. Are there elders or deacons who are not truly believers, not truly disciples in the world? Yes, there are. Are there, you know, like a board game, you buy a board game that says for ages 5 to 99. You feel bad for a 100-year-old person who's not allowed to play the game anymore, right? But could there be people that have gone to a church for one year or people who have gone to church for 99 years? Yeah. Even one of the 12. Even one of the 12. So we see three major themes in this passage here. Number one, God brings dead people to life through the word. Amen? Number two, the flesh wants signs and likes stuff. Very technical language there. The flesh wants signs and likes stuff. And it's no help at all. And three, there are disciples who aren't disciples. So then that asks, we have to ask three questions. Okay, three questions. The first question is this. What makes evangelism truly effective? All this being considered, what makes evangelism truly effective? God does. God does. The Son gave his flesh and blood for us at the cross. The Father gives us a new heart, gives us to Jesus, draws us and teaches us, and the Spirit gives us life. There's the Trinity for you in our salvation. And he gives us life through the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ, Romans 10. So that's question number one. Question number two, what doesn't make evangelism truly effective? What doesn't make evangelism truly effective? The flesh. The flesh. If we think people are going to get saved because of candy or money or music styles or carpet or even healing, we're fooling ourselves. We are fooling ourselves. Now, people will come to church for some of those things, right? That's been proven over and over. But remember this. What we win them with is what we've won them to. 
if our growth or even the attendance, sustaining the attendance we have now as a church, if that's only the result of candy or money or music styles or carpet or anything else that is not the word of God for the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're going to have a lot of work to do. We're going to have our work cut out for us. We're going to be spinning some serious plates. Does that make sense? As soon as someone's not happy with their sign, they're going to be threatening to leave. They're going to be getting ticked off. They're going to be doing all kinds of things. And then whenever anything changes... Okay? If we're wrongly valuing things of the flesh, there'll be arguments and sinful controversy and all this kind of stuff. And realize, we'll never make everyone happy with all of their likes and dislikes. No one. And if we change this to make that person happy, and then this other person will become upset because of the same thing we did to make that person happy, and we'll spend all of our time and energy appealing to a bunch of individual fleshes. That's exhausting, and it's empty. It doesn't accomplish anything good. The flesh is no help at all. And whenever that kind of controversy stirs up, it feels like a disaster, doesn't it? It feels like a disaster. But it's not. It probably felt like a disaster that day after all those things happened, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, going to the other side of the sea, and then all these people leave. It probably felt like a disaster. But it wasn't. It's just reality. And whatever's in our hearts, Jesus said, comes out of our mouth. And God's word never returns void. It always succeeds in doing exactly what God sends it to do. Uh, Listen to this passage. When we serve Lord's Supper, we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 11. But before it gets to the part where it reminds them of what the Lord's Supper is, Paul rebukes them for what it isn't. Listen to these verses from 1 Corinthians 11. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear, so are these people who are calling themselves disciples? You're coming together as a church. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for, why? There must be factions among you. Ah, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, does that, time, does that mean that every time there's a disagreement, that means people aren't Christians? No, 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 no. But those who would leave the faith because of a disagreement, there must be factions among you to reveal the genuineness of your heart that that may be recognized. We need to disagree on things from time to time because sometimes we're wrong, right? Sometimes there's a better idea, and we need to talk with each other, and we need to ask questions, and we need to work together, but we need to do it in a spirit of unity for the glory of God, for the spreading of the word of God. That's what we're about. That's why we're here. So, I know it can be a fearful thing to see factions. I'm not a huge fan of going through that myself. But they're necessary. They are going to happen, and they reveal hearts. And by God's grace, hopefully the person whose maybe disingenuine heart is revealed, even if it's mine, will see it and repent. Realize, I shouldn't get everything I want. If it was just a Pastor Andy getting everything he wants kind of a deal, then what are we? That's not healthy. And that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. But when that happens and we see it, God be gracious to us that we'd be able to repent. And we know this. We have no cause for fear. What did Christ say he's going to do? He will build his church And that being considered, here's question number three. 
We know that God is what makes evangelism effective through his word, and we know that the flesh doesn't make evangelism effective. So how should we then strive to win souls? The Proverbs say that he that wins souls is wise. How should we strive to do that? Well, how about this? Let's do God's work God's way. Doing God's work God's way. And remember, we need to help people. If we have water and someone's thirsty, let's give him a drink. Love your neighbor as yourself. But let's give them water just because it's the right thing to do. It honors the Lord and it shows love to that person. But we need to help people with physical needs where we can because it's the right thing to do. It honors and helps people. And we need to share the word of God with people because it's the right thing to do. It honors and obeys the Lord and it shows love to others. Does that make sense? Will will we often do both with the same person? Of course. But we're not going to get somebody saved because we gave them water. Or because we gave them money. Does that make sense? Do those things when we can to help people because it's right. But not as a manipulative tool. We did this, so guess what you're going to do? That's not love. Does that make sense? But share the word. Share the word. So let's follow God's command to take the gospel to the world and to our neighbors. Not just fake people out there, but real people that we know. And we'll do it God's way. Let's win people with what they need to be won to. And let's trust that the God of the universe has the ability to use the means he has given us through his word to accomplish all his holy and sovereign will. Church, we are on the Lord's side. (laughs) We're on the Lord's side. We are on the side of the Lord who has never known defeat. Did Jesus go down and defeat that day in John 6? No, he did not. So let's lovingly and boldly take the word of God to the lost. Let's lovingly and boldly teach the word of God as we grow together as genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Christians, not one of you will be lost. You will be raised from the dead. God's word is powerful and effective. We are guaranteed success. So let's go. Jeremiah 15, 6, I'm going to end with this. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We we know you are the God who has never known defeat. You do not know defeat. You never will know defeat. We praise you and we thank you. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice, that he would take on flesh and dwell among us and live among us and give his life in his righteousness, that he would become sinless so that we could have his righteousness and be forgiven, be called your children, and be your people. God, thank you. God, may we grow as people who love your word, who believe in your word because it's yours. It's how you reveal yourself to us. God, may we have faith to believe that your word is always effective so that when we love people, when we meet people, when we encourage people, when we show kindness to people, that we know that that comes uh, because of your grace and the truth of eternal life comes from your word. And may we trust you with the results. And God, I pray that you would work in such a way that we would see fruit from that. 
that as we faithfully preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and share your word, that you would put hearts of good soil in them, that the word of God, the seed, would uh, take root and grow and produce fruit. God, we ask that you would do a work amongst us as we grow and amongst this community as we sow the seed of your word for your honor and your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.